This is Get Uncomfortable, the podcast where we talk race, politics, religion, and so much more with me, Adam Smith. The R's have found what many strategists calls their new abortion, issues to elicit emotion, albeit not coming from factual realities or even the views of the majority of America. The issues have generated debates resonating from our schools, communities, and even dinner tables. Everyone is drawing lines in the sand because everyone cares about the kiddos. These issues center around the teaching of true American history, allowing students to be who God created them to be and love who they choose to love. Books are being burned, educators are leaving the profession, and many feel issues around the white supremacist colonial history of America are just too much for white children to handle. Now whole states are banning books, AP African American history and insisting that schools are installing litter boxes for confused kids who believe they're cats. College has always been a space of independent thought, thinking, and student growth in worldview and personal values. Despite what many fear to be liberal indoctrination, many students come to college and when given space, love, and real talk, grow in their personal awareness, accountability, and work as an ally and even an accomplice. One such young person is my guest and former student and current friend and colleague, Shelby Saylor. After working for over a decade at a nonprofit, Shelby now works in account management and sales for a global fitness company. She grew up in small town Ohio and has traveled all over the country for work, giving her a unique perception of how isms show up in every corner of the U.S. She went to undergrad at the University of Akron, where she met mentors who helped not only support but shape the woman she has grown into today. She possesses a master's degree from Cleveland State University and a bachelor's degree from the University of Akron, both in exercise physiology. She is most proud of being a mother to an amazing seven-year-old daughter. Shelby, welcome so much. Let's get uncomfortable, lady. How are you? I'm doing good. Good, good. Tell everyone where you are in the world and let's talk a little bit about your background, the before college, and then... Yeah, we gave your bio, but talk a little bit about yourself, your journey, where you are in the world, all of those things to kind of level set for us. Absolutely. So I currently hail from the land of Cleveland, Ohio, (laughs) and I, I grew up in Ohio, Southern Ohio, specifically more rural Rust Belt area, small town, very manufacturing driven And then I went to the University of Akron because I met this really cool group of people that recruited me from my small town in the Appalachia area um, to join what was called the Jumpstart Program or the Running Start Program and started college just mere days after graduating high school in a group full of people that honestly were just a bunch of misfit toys at the time (laughs) where... All of us came from different backgrounds, and that was quite different for me, because I don't know if you've ever been in small town Ohio, but it is not in any way um, diverse 
It's a lot of people who looked like me, who thought like me, who indoctrinated me the same way that they were indoctrinated. And I just didn't know any better, but I thought I knew everything. Um, So to come into this group of misfits, if you will, that came from every racial background, financial background, education background was a bit shocking. And it took some time to get my feet under me, which is what we're going to talk about today. And from there, I just skyrocketed through undergrad, went, got my master's degree and my undergrad in about four and a half years and hit the workforce ready to run. Where I went to Houston and took that another level deeper as it relates to communities of various backgrounds, right? One of the most diverse cities in the world, in the world, in the United States. Let's go there, not the world. (laughs) Um, And just was challenged a lot. And for the first time since I think that initial summer, I had to take a step back and start asking myself these same hard questions again. So yeah, small town girl moved to a big city, then just tried to had to figure it out. Well, and talk a little bit about because you talked about undergrad and graduate school, but kind of set set the record as far as your degrees, because the Running Start program at the University of Akron was part of the Choose Ohio First scholarship program that focuses state scholarship at the time when state politicians could work together. So at the time, Governor Strickland was as blue as it comes, worked with John Husted, who is not as red as some Ohioans who are struggling getting votes right now. Um, but <laughs> they worked together to create a program called Choose Ohio First, which was which is all about retaining talent in Ohio that goes into STEM disciplines and then encouraging people who typically don't whether you were from Appalachia and rural, whether you were a woman, whether you were non-traditional, whether you're a person of color, to pursue STEM and not just to pursue it, but to create the access to support the opportunity and the support to support getting you not only to STEM, but through STEM. And mm-hmm. so shall we talk a little bit about your majors, why you chose them, and a little bit about your professional work, how you've used those things? Yeah, absolutely. So I did both my undergrad and my graduate degree in exercise physiology, which to kind of put that in English for anyone who doesn't know, most people who go through the exercise physiology program move on to do medical school or be in some sort of medical degree, be that chiropractic, physical therapy, occupational therapy. And I I went through all of those routes and I did the internships and I... I tried to figure it out where I wanted to land there, but none of them really spoke to me. I felt like I was on the very reactionary side. So I continued to pursue the academics, do some research, and ultimately landed in the nonprofit fitness space. Specifically, I worked at the YMCA for over a decade, helping in communities that struggle with health equity. So making wellness and fitness accessible to every community, regardless of whether you can afford it or not afford it. And that was something really important to me, especially coming from a first generation, low income, Appalachian, rural area that didn't have access to fitness in general, other than just pure hard farm labor. So the STEM discipline wasn't necessarily the end result for me. 
but going through that process and getting the very technical degree is what led me to be able to support communities of color, to support rural communities and everyone in between having the knowledge that I went through. How did, so you talked a little bit about what you came to Akron with. Kind of, kind of clear that up for us. So what were some of those thoughts and ideas and perspectives? You know, I remember telling you and telling students forever, you know, the, the spot in life when you really know everything is when you realize you know nothing. Mm-hmm. But we all come, and it was the beauty of Choose Ohio First at that time, and many other, because for all of y'all who are TRIO people, Upper Bound, Student Support Services, Educational Talent Search, that's where I started my career in higher ed. So picture student support services focused on STEM with a tuition scholarship attached to it. That's exactly what Choose Ohio First is and was. So state-funded, but also provides a half tuition scholarship from the state, which was very, 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 very powerful. And so what we did was many of those trio tenants dating back to 1965, we infused with students from Summer Bridge to, you know, mandatory supplemental instruction, you know, Shelby knows I love the word mandatory because I don't do optional. Why would I expect an 18-year-old college student to do optional? Um, so we make things mandatory and required. And if you want to be a part of our community, this is what you do. And so, but a lot of that first summer was spent on the academic pieces, taking two classes, math and and uh, English or something like that. But we also had a lot of time to do the sociocultural pieces. So talk about what you came to the like the old Shelby, those old ideas and perspectives and even kind of just being closed off to learning and talk about some of the things that kind of the deep end we threw you in during that first summer. Yeah. So I hadn't really had many experiences with black and brown folks. Let's just like say it as it is coming in to college. So the only opinions I had were ones that were either on TV and what I saw happening or what was told to me by the people in my community, because we know, you know, history is written by the winners. (laughs) And I saw myself very much as a winner. I, if you've ever met anyone from a small town that is very rural, took much pride in being a country girl, if you will, and all of the stereotypes that go with that, and a chip on my shoulder that I had to just like work hard and everything's given to me because I work hard for it. And just that that mentality around if you wanted better in your life, you should have worked harder for it. You couldn't tell me otherwise. And then my high school mascot growing up was a redskin. And I took a lot of pride in that. And I was, you know, I was a redskin. And I I never even thought that there was an issue. If anything was the opposite, it was more defensive. I came in with a very defensive mindset where if you were to tell me that something that I did or said was racist or homophobic or just in general critical to help me get better. It was, you don't know me in the struggles I've had to get here. 
And that was my entire identity. You don't know the struggles I went through to get here. How dare you say that you're struggling? (laughs) I remember the conversation we had about your parents being working class, blue blue collar, biker types, hard Mm -hmm. hands, hard driving folks. Mm -hmm. And like, it's hard for them too. Well, it's almost like acknowledging and this... Everyone of color, queer folks, women, we all get in this space where it's trauma Olympics, right? Well, my trauma is worse than your trauma. And listen, there's there's plenty of room and seats in the stadium of trauma. Yeah. And so it's okay to say, that's really effed up that you went through that. But yeah. in that space as an 18-year-old, and the beauty of Shelby's growth and evolution is some of us stay that closed off 18 year old 20 years later, 30 years later, 40 years later. The difference is there were things that challenged those ideas with you, where all of a sudden, as happened with Saul, who became Paul, the scales start falling from your eyes. And you're like, okay, yeah, my family did go through some things, but they could also get a GI Bill. They could also get an FHA loan. They could also do some things, systematic Mm -hmm. things, that it doesn't mean they didn't work hard. Just like as a man, when I got my flu shot the other day, I thought I was going to die. But your pain is your pain and your trauma is your trauma. Talk a little bit because you talked about the native mascot, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so during our summer program, six weeks, right? And we would talk, we would do sociocultural. So it would range from things like the arts and going to visit a museum and getting on the bus in Akron, Ohio to figure out how to get around so you aren't sequestered on campus, meeting different campus leaders, but also things like privilege and things like the use of native mascots in sports. Talk a little bit about how that specific topic impacted you and how you kind of talked about your high school mascot and where you were thinking, but how that kind of was a seed for you. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. Racism would have been too big to start with for me, like just blatant outright racism, because I I would have fought that way too hard. However, at a very specific point in the summer bridge program, we did start talking about native peoples and how their lived experiences might be different than my impression of what they actually were, right? That idea of, but I have Native Native American blood. Also, fun fact, I don't. Um, 23andMe confirmed. So I think that's also a stereotype that gets perpetuated in these small towns is we couldn't have oppressed them. We're a part of them. So for me, there was that aha moment when we started talking about this because of a very specific documentary that up to this point, I was like, yeah, okay. Like, I don't understand why you're making such a big deal. It's just a mascot. And we watched in whose honor, which is about um, the fighting Illini and their transformation where they had a native mascot. And now it's just like the big eye. And it was really harrowing for me to like, take that all in because I'd never actually been faced with the reality as much as like the media backlash from everyone who had lots of feelings about mascots changing for whatever reason. It's a sport. I don't know. Like, you know, it's not that big of a deal. It just ain't that serious. Um, But 
that's all I had seen. And it's all I had heard. And then when I saw the other side of the coin, it kind of had me sit back and like, I don't think I talked for a bit because I felt very mad at myself. And that's when it changed, when I stopped being mad at everybody else for how they were putting me in a box or putting my ideologies and my backgrounds into a box and labeling me as this just this white girl with privilege versus seeing that privilege and seeing that pain. And it just, it caused a moment of pause. And in that pause, I realized that I don't have to hurt either. Like, if I want to tackle this, I need to, like, do something about it. I have to change the way I think. And it had to be in bite-sized pieces, honestly. Like, it didn't happen overnight. It wasn't like I watched a documentary and it was like, oh, my gosh, this all makes sense. There were a million times where I had to just be like, but why? Like, why? However, that documentary led me to a place where I could ask that question. And it, it created a safer space because we were doing this together as a group where I didn't feel like if I asked why I was going to be ostracized from the group. Like you guys opened up this conversation, so let's have it. And then I just took it by the horns and ran with it. It wasn't easy. Oh, no. And part of your, what I remember, high school cheerleader too. Mm-hmm. Right. So rooting for that mascot and that name it, it, it's a community pride. It's a cheerleader thing. I mean, it's a different thing. And so I remember the conversations and part of my job and part of, it's really hard as people of color, right? And queer folks and women, right? Like it's your job to teach every man about toxic masculinity and misogyny, mm-hmm. but it's also, and it isn't, right? Oh. And it, and we say as people of color, look, you, racism isn't our problem, I mean, we have to deal with it, but y'all need to fix yourself, right? Mm -hmm. Fix you, fix your community. Like I can't, it's like I couldn't make my dad stop using. Yeah. You know, I could just say, look, here are my bottom lines. Unless you're going to adhere to my bottom lines, you can't be in my life. Mm -hmm. The difference in an educational setting, and it's hard, our staff did not mirror the a typical higher ed staff. Our staff mirrored a trio staff. I mean, we have one white person, and then we had a Colombian, and then we have a gay black guy, and we have a black guy from Western Tennessee, and then you have me and my multiracial blackness, and then we have a Hmong woman. And, you know, so it was just different. And a lot of those staff were my students at 1.2, which is even more crazy. And so they are super, super even more Teresa, our world changing, you know, fist in the air, crazy, radical, white lioness, just impatient with the students. But sometimes you just got to give people space and you give it to them and then you back up because then it starts from, but Adam loves me. Like, would, would Adam lie? So when I sit and I tell the stories of me not growing up in Minneapolis, all of my Minnesota folks, when the Twins and the Braves are playing in the World Series in 1991, and I'm Shelby's age at the time, 18, and I'm working security at the Metrodome. And at this point, the nations in the upper Midwest, okay, and the nations being 
you know, the Red Lake Nation and the Ojibwe Nation and the Lakota Nation, they are losing their minds about the tomahawk chop and the loss of everything, a group that of people who've experienced genocide, you know, who survived genocide in our country. And it was this huge controversy because no one had really talked about it up until then. And so you had all these people sounding off on, is it harmful? Is it not? Is it this? Aren't we celebrating their culture? Aren't we glorifying it, right? All of these things. And then they go find the one native Indian person who didn't care, right? Who's <laughs> just like, oh, no. And then they put them on TV. But I get to the Metrodome early, and the nations have encircled the Metrodome, right? And they are out there, and you can barely even get there during the World Series. And so afterwards, game, I don't even remember what game, come outside afterwards, and they're interviewing this older gentleman. And the reporter from CNN or whatever says, well, people say this is glorifying. What, what do you say? And he said, but it's ours. They've taken our land. They've taken our buffalo. They've taken everything. You know, kill the Indian, save the man, and going to, you know, going to the camps, right? They can't have this. These are our feathers. It's our tradition. It's our image. And this older gentleman, who's probably my age now, I saw the tear go come down his face. And it changed everything for me. Then I said, well, if it's making people cry, it ain't that damn serious. Bingo. If it hurts, right? it's not worth it. Like, mm -mm. even if you you don't feel like it's that big of a deal, is it really bringing you that much joy that you're willing to hurt someone else over it? Yep. Yep. Well, in my last point on the native mascot thing, my mother says to me one day, because she went to a high school named, so after this, after the, tw the twins won the World Series, by the way, so it's good. But after that, the Minnesota State High School League votes to get rid of all native mascots. So every single state of Minnesota team has to change. Okay, the reason the University of Illinois changed is because a huge amount of activism and pressure from the indigenous, the native, the Indian communities, but also the state of Minnesota refused to let Chief Illini Wack in the state. And they're in the same conference. So it's like, you're not coming and dancing on our court. You're not coming around. It, so the activism of the people mattered. Same thing with North Dakota, with their Sioux mascot. North Dakota is a hockey state. And their number one rival, the University of Minnesota Golden Gophers. They were not allowed to play hockey in the state of Minnesota. And the Gophers would not go to North Dakota and fill that arena until they took that Sioux head down. Mm -hmm. So that pressure matters, right? Made a huge difference. And I think about those kind of things. And I think about the day when the Cleveland team changed their name. Mm -hmm. And my student, Shelby Saylor, sent me a screenshot of the Guardians logo. That's how far we went. That it isn't that serious, right? And my mom said, back to my mom, who went to Hopkins Eisenhower High School when it was the Warriors, and they're, they're now the Royals. And my mom just kept saying, well, when will it ever change? Maybe they'll change the name of the Vikings to something else. Are they?" I said, are they still going to be purple? 
because if they're purple, I'm cool. I, I don't care. It's not that serious to me, right? If it hurts people. And she said, well, it'll just never stop. People, all these feelings and all of this. I said, I hope we continue to evolve. I mean, we're a country that was so-called founded in 1776. It wasn't that long ago, right? So we're a baby, an infant country. I hope a hundred years from now, your daughter's great-grandchildren will have a different United States, even if it's not named that, than you have. So I said to my mom, I hope we don't change. Talk about a little bit more about how this outlook has been tested, right? Because obviously in undergrad, the growth happens. Talk a little bit about how life has kind of tested this for you and how your resolve um, has had to kind of hold true and evolve like in your professional spaces. Absolutely. I think the common theme is it's never going to stop hurting. It's never going to stop sucking when you get told that you did something that hurt someone else. Like that is something you have to sit with and become comfortable with, whether you're an undergrad or in a professional setting is we're living in a culture where people are now willing to say that's not okay what you did and being able to take that on and say how can i do better then and and not overthink it i've spent a lot of time in therapy about my feelings around anti-racism anti-homophobia like the pressure i put on myself and so i'll give a couple examples leave the university setting where it's kind of a safe space to talk about it because it, it becomes sterile and academic there. And you're still not really facing it, like how it's showing up in the world. And I have a distinct memory when I was managing 13 gyms, had all kinds of staff. I was like the cool, hip, young manager and how my words mattered. And it still to this day like makes me cringe when I think about this experience. But I had an employee. At one point, I had used a term like brother. Because growing up, that was a very like country thing. Like, hey, brother. Like, you hear it now. Like, hell yeah, brother. But the context in Cleveland versus Southern Ohio of that word are two very different things. <laughs> And so referring to this black man in a setting of professional work, like, hey, brother, listen, you're going to have to like get your stuff together and do this thing. And I had used it a few times to the point where he went to HR and was like, this lady's racist. She's calling me brother because I'm black and like all of this stuff. And it wasn't even something I was intentionally doing. In my gut reaction, still, we were probably eight years down the road past that initial time of coming into Summer Bridge and opening this can of worms to sitting back and being like, I didn't mean it like that. Why are you getting so offended and pausing and like taking a deep breath and being like, it didn't matter how I meant it. It mattered how he received it. And... I ended up taking a post-it note and putting it on like the inside of my cabinet at work that said, your perception is not their reality. And constantly reminding myself that in a position of power, the words I choose are going to matter regardless of intent. Because at the end of the day, someone's lived reality is their reality. And you have the power to change that. You have the power to get better. I can't take back 
what I did or said that made him feel that way. But what I can do is sit down. I can acknowledge. I can apologize even for those microaggressions that I was unaware of. And then I can say, I'm going to do this to be better. Do you have any other suggestions? Not to put the pressure on them. I Here's the solution. I don't want you to give me one. And it, it all comes down to naming it, acknowledging it, and then solutioning it yourself, but also creating space for that individual to come to the table and say, here's how I would have liked you to have handled that. If they want to. This is, you know that's so good, right? I mean, intention versus impact is what I always say, right? We always, oftentimes you'll have these people gaff, whether it's Biden or it's God help us 45, right? He doesn't apologize. But, um, and people make these veiled attempts. Well, mm -hmm. if I hurt you, I'm, I apologize if you were hurt by what I said, but that was, nobody cares about what your intention is, no. right? There's nothing wrong with saying to someone, I'm really sorry. I screwed up. I hope you can forgive me. I'm going to do my work and do better. Mm -hmm. That isn't your responsibility to help teach me. I'm going to do freaking better. Mm -hmm. And if you find the space or the time or the energy or the grace where you want to help me, cool. If not, I get it. Mm -hmm. The part that's so hard with, and I want to talk about uh, tease out this apology thing, because we apologize for shit we didn't do all the time. If somebody's family member is ill, I'm so sorry. If somebody gets in a car accident, oh, I'm so, I'm so sorry. How can I help? Are you okay? If somebody is going through something in work or in their personal life or with their relationship, I'm so sorry. Let me give you space. How can I support you? But then when we actually do something, intentionally or not, because we didn't have anything to do with the car accident or the cancer that Grandma Sally has or the fight that this person is having with their partner or their kid getting diagnosed with ADHD or all the things. But our first reaction is to say what? I am so sorry. How can I help? We sometimes even bake a freaking casserole and bring it to their house. Mm -hmm. We do nothing. So why when we've done something intentionally or unintentionally that has hurt someone? This guy was saying, he wasn't saying Shelby's a bad person. He was saying what Shelby is doing is hurting me and it's othering me. And it's making me feel, as Black folks would say, some type of way. Mm -hmm. Why do we struggle, especially in our privilege, right? Privilege groups, because I have a whole bunch of privilege myself. Why do Why do you think we all struggle with just sitting in the apology. What do you think? Shame. I mean, mm. for me, it it's always been and will always continue to be shame. I hold myself to a high standard of a person that I want to be. And when I am reminded that I'm not that person yet, I feel guilty. I feel mad. I feel upset. I feel othered. Because I've grown up in a privileged space where I'm never meant to feel othered. I'm never made to feel on the outside. And in those moments, it goes back, honestly, to an analogy that I used at the Summer Bridge program around racism and being called a racist. Because I can't even begin to put myself in your shoes or my friend's shoes who are of minority groups. Because 
how do you know what a broken arm feels like if you've never broken your arm? You can say that sucks. Like that, that sounds like it was awful. But until you feel a pain similar, it's really hard to put yourself in a position where you realize you're the person causing that pain. And for me, the way I shared it with my other um, white classmates at the time was around the word racist, right? And how do you feel when someone calls you a racist and you don't think you are one? You feel awful. You feel dirty. You feel like people don't like you because of something you can't control, things that happened a long time ago. Well, it was my ancestors. Like, I'm not racist. I don't use the N-word. Like, you start to feel on the outside. And that's the smallest sliver that I can show as an example to anyone who's like, why do you, why does this matter? Has anyone ever called you a racist when you don't feel like you are one? That's what it feels like to live in that space every single day for the rest of your life. How would that feel? Constantly feel less than. But shout out to conversations about shame, right? Because shame shame is real. Shame is a mother trucker, y'all. I mean, shame will do crazy things to people, make people hate other people because we're shamed of our own selves, right? And like Shelby said, getting a good therapist or two or three is where this starts. Mm -hmm. So many people called me after George Floyd's murder and the uprisings in my hometown. What do I do? What do I do? What book do I buy? How about get to freaking work on yourself? Why? No, that's not the answer I want. Because I don't want to be, I, I, I want to know. Because in our, in our country, growing up in a white community with white family, I've had this privilege of seeing behind the veil the other people of color navigate most white people like hyena, like um, meerkats navigate hyenas and, and lions. I lived with the hyenas and lions. And I can tell you, you just don't think about it. And so being a racist is almost like I, uh, being Hitler. Because yeah. what, what has been ingrained in white folks' minds is that race being a racist is horrible. And it's those people. It's those people who hang nooses and crosses and that happened a long time ago and all these things. And so it's almost like you're telling somebody they are the most vile thing in the history of the planet and people then attack because of that shame. Can you talk a little bit about how important it was that you were in those times, right? And even now in your life when people call you on shit, right? Um, how it was important to be held accountable, but also be given some space and not to constantly be, okay, we got to do, but you knew, especially with me and our team, that there was no point where we thought you were right. I mean, you're wrong, but it's important that you were given space to learn, to grow. You as an exercise physiologist, right? And all the work you do, you get stronger when you have time to recover. You got to have some recovery space so that you can heal that tissue and you can heal as a human, right? And oftentimes it's, we want it so fast so much that we don't give people the time and the space at the same time, the consistency and the accountability. Cause it's one thing to be sore after one hard workout and then don't work out again. 
It's another thing to be in this constant state of soreness, that level of accountability and consistency that not only we provided you during your undergraduate time and even in your life now, but the people in your village provide you today. So talk a little bit about the importance of space, time to heal, as well as accountability. Yeah. So I'll start with the accountability piece, because that's probably the harder one, honestly. Um, That piece never gets easier still to this day. Um, My friend and supervisor at work is a part of the LGBTQA community and is constantly calling me on my bullshit. Like, you can't say that. You should address it this way or pulling me aside. There's the big piece, accountability in private as well was very important for me so that that shame didn't snowball and I didn't feel attacked. So from the accountability piece, then and now, it had to be done in a respectful way. Like you couldn't sit there and tell me, like, you need to do better. You need to be better. You need, you need, you have to do, you have to do this. Like the accountability came from a place of love and trust. And that was foundational. If it's someone that I don't care about, if I don't trust you or your opinion or know that you're looking out for me becoming a better person, if it feels, I hate to say it, all about you, I wouldn't have listened. You were just like, I'm I'm trying to help you be better. And I knew it was coming from a good place. And so I was open to receiving the accountability. There had to be that layer of trust. And then on the other side of the space, it's the challenging part, right? Because we all want to get there quickly. I had to go through the motions of still saying the wrong things for a long time and doing the wrong things and believing the wrong things and do it in chunks and it coming up slowly because it's really easy to get overwhelmed with all of the horrible things you do as a human being on a regular basis if they're constantly thrown your way. So the pace of the accountability and it not being a weekend seminar where I'm going to tell you all the things you need to do better or an intervention. (laughs) Like it came in a digestible way in a safe and trusted space. And then if I was like, I'm, I still don't get it. You would be like, that's okay. You will one day. And that almost made me feel worse sometimes, honestly, because I'm like, that that's like telling your kids you'll understand when you're older. Um, I, I was like, no, I, I want to understand why you're mad at me and why you think that I need to be doing better when I'm putting in all this work already. And it was like, I'm not mad at you. I love you. Like, you're going to get there. But you have to go on this by yourself. And it's so it leaded to a space where I could be curious instead of angry. With time and space, I was allowed to be curious and ask the questions that you think in the back of your mind and you don't want to offend people. You don't want to hurt their feelings. But then I could think through those things, then come to a, a T member. I think of D and be like, talk to me about your hair care routine. Like, how is that different? And approach it from, again, my own place of love and not defensiveness. Because if you try to do it quick and you don't pace it and there is no accountability, it just turns into a pressure cooker 
and no one no one's coming out of that alive. Well, and I think the balance that you're talking about is so important, right? Because there's so many straight folks who have a queer friend or a queer sister or a queer this. And then it's that's your defense to being a homophobe as well. You know, my sister's gay. I can't be a homophobe, right? If anybody calls you a homophobe or that you did something that was harmful or hurtful, you immediately throw up your sister, right? My sister and her wife, Dominique, right? Um, The same thing with black and brown folks. Well, my friend, so-and-so is black. Yeah, I have black friends. How could I ever be racist? (laughs) But the challenges are those black friends really having conversation with you and doing the things that you're talking about. Are they holding you accountable or is it just a colorblind friendship that you only see or use their blackness to defend somebody calling you a racist? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're not... That's not a friendship, though, because that's not a friend with a whole person, because I promise you, your black friend has a deep, rich life that they have to protect and guard themselves against racism and misogyny and microaggressions and all the things, just like your queer, you know, uh, co-worker and team member has to do. Those are the pieces, right, that are that are so important. How do you think this new outlook you know, and having people in your village who are going to call you on your bullshit. How has that really shaped it? And then on top of it, the best part, Shelby Sailor, it ain't just about you. I mean, yeah, I love me some Shelby, right? I, I do. Y'all just know. Shelby know I love me some Shelby. <laughs> but the reality is Shelby has been out and directing programming for the YMCA of Cleveland and Houston and doing this work with hundreds of people's teams. See, that's that's where if you hold somebody accountable, you love them enough to hold them accountable, you teach them, you give them space, but then you keep coming back and you keep coming back. Now Shelby is, she's hiring people, she's leading teams. More importantly, she has a baby girl. Mm-hmm. See, I'm trying to make a bunch of anti-racist, anti-homophobes. Now- mm-hmm. Shelby's got a daughter. Ain't no way her daughter going to grow up without being an anti all of this crap. And she isn't just going to be an ally. Shelby's daughter going to be an accomplice. She's going to be riding in the car and the brother's going to be getting in the back and she's going to be taking off. How has this new Shelby changed and evolved even more now for you as a mother? How much more do you feel a sense of urgency and responsibility for being on the right side of all this stuff that starts with you? How has being a mom helped maybe ingrain in you how important your own work is in these spaces? Yeah, that's a lot to unpack there because it goes in a hundred directions, right? Like my gut reaction thought is I never want her to feel othered either like i i don't want to raise her in a space where one day she's becoming aware of this for the first time like i I never want her to see these problems as an attack as much as something that she can be a part of and solutioning and hopefully build a world in 30 years that it, it it isn't as big of a deal it isn't hard to talk about i'm not saying a world where it's easy I'm talking about a space where it's not unusual for people to just talk about race and religion and ethnicity openly and not fear that. 
So for me, I want to raise her in a place where she's unafraid to have hard conversations and not from a place of anger, from a place of love. Because for me, hard conversations growing up usually came from a place of anger. As it relates to how she sees the world, that's hard. I mean, we're we're in a place where I'm Googling, can a president become president from prison, right? Like, I want her to be better, regardless of what media influences are, what articles are coming up on her iPhone one day when she's a teenager. I want her to be able to form her own opinions. And I want her to be backed with the knowledge from a place where we are all in this together. And you can ask your friends questions about their heritage and you can talk to people about their struggles and you can talk to me about it, right? Like I'm never going to have all the answers, but I want to raise a daughter who can come to me and say, Hey, why did your high school mascot change from this to this? Could you tell me about that? And like, I, I want to do better so that I can help answer those questions and not put it on someone else. I don't want her to feel like she has to go seek out people of othered groups to seek the answers that really we should be finding out on our own. Like there's enough knowledge out there that I can help her alongside this journey. That was a really roundabout way to say, I'd like to just raise a really open and thoughtful person. (laughs) And it's hard. It's really hard. And it is, you know, Shelby, I can tell you every day I'm proud of you. The degrees, yeah, the four and a half. eh, I'm proud of the person you are, the mother you are, the world changer you are. Every day, you make me proud. Always and always, you do. Um, And I'm 100% confident that the people in your life, your daughter, you know, co-parenting children as a mother, um, literally, um, but the work that you are willing to do on yourself, that evolution is what me what makes me feel like the world is in really, really good hands. Thank you so much for joining me today, for sharing from your heart, for all the work you do, for doing the hard work and the hard work, and for being more than just an ally, for riding shotgun, for driving the car, Um, and for being such a world changer for all of our lives. Thank you so much for joining us. Always. Love you, Adam. You know I love you. (laughs) Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to this episode of Get Uncomfortable. Get Uncomfortable is produced in partnership between me, Rachel Hansen, and Adam Smith. If you want to hear more from Adam visit his website, hearadamspeak.com, where you can book him to speak at your organization and hear more about what he has to say about what we talk about here on the show. Now, if you want to support the show itself, there are a variety of ways that you can do that. You can leave us a review anywhere you listen to podcasts, send us an email, or share an episode with a friend. Until next time, Stay uncomfortable.